Welcome to Music Defender, a podcast devoted to the maligned, misunderstood, and misinterpreted music of our lives. The records and artists who didn't get a fair shake, or sadly, people love to hate. Join us each week as we defend these gems from the tides of history and set the record straight. I was born in a beauty Death of a Ladies' Man, which was released on Warner Brothers in 1977. So this album, we know, uh, after the fact now, was a flop and was never looked upon favorably by either Cohen or Spectre. Something we also know, uh, or Cohen fans know, Cohen fans such as myself, um, is that Death of a Ladies' Man would be the last album of Cohen's excellent early period before beginning his even more celebrated middle period, which was marked by songs like Hallelujah and hit albums like I'm Your Man. So this bit of hindsight makes the album sound all the more like a false start or a kind of wrong turn, and maybe explains why it's the black sheep of Leonard Cohen's discography to this day. Um, so I think looking back, it's, it's harder to be as forgiving as critics were um, at the time. This is taken from Rolling Stone's album guide, so this uh, was published some years after the album came out. Um, and it, I think this review reflects the, the contemporary consen- consensus about where the album fits in Leonard Cohen's overall discography. Uh, so the review says, quote, The bad music here can't be blamed on Phil Spector's melodies. Cohen has never posed as a particularly tuneful guy himself. And the main thing wrong with Spector's settings, banal though they are, is that they lack doors. Ordinarily, Cohen whispers, murmurs, whines, croaks, and even screams through the music. Here he has to try and sing over it, using more or less normal volume and timbre. Um, So I want to take a second to see what he means, uh, or what the reviewer here means by singing over the music, which is what, which is the criticism here. Um, So I want to start, we'll listen real quick to what might be the most horrible track on the album, uh, which is Memories, and which is probably the most... uh, alien sounding for modern taste. just a few years earlier. In Chelsea Hotel Number 2, we get, I think, what many people would agree is classic Leonard Cohen. The music is uh, spare, the vocal performance is subdued, the lyrics are poetic and melancholic. I remember you were in the Chelsea Hotel You were talking so brave and so sweet 
giving me head on the unmade bed while the limousines wait in the street. Those were the reasons. So Memories, on the other hand, is a bad song because it's a kind of tug of war between Leonard Cohen's aesthetic and Phil Spector's aesthetic. Spector's pushing his signature sound onto Cohen's folk sensibilities, and it sounds like a train wreck. So how, how did we get here to the mid-'70s, to Leonard Cohen teaming up with Phil Spector? Callie, I think you read a little bit about this. Um, I'll go ahead and fill it in, and please correct me if you heard anything else. Uh, so the 1970s were the period when Los Angeles was the refuge for desperate showbiz people. It was an aimless, debaucherous, no-man's-land of booze and hard drugs where people who got famous in the 60s, like Phil Spector, could indulge all of their eccentricities, usually at the expense of their art. Los Angeles is where John Lennon embarked on his lost weekend uh, when he and Yoko separated and he fell in with the Hollywood vampires, who were the rambunctious group of drunks led by Alice Cooper and Harry Nielsen. Uh, Hollywood was pretty much crumbling at this time, um, as uh, other American inner cities had become dens of crime and addiction. Uh, But if if you had money, Hollywood was a pretty good place to be uh, if you wanted to be a kind of lawless freak. (laughs) Uh, Fame had long ago gone to Phil Spector's head. Phil Spector's notorious for being a kind of uh, eccentric crackpot. Um, uh, Stories of Phil Spector in Los Angeles at this time are infamous. And he would pull all-nighters at studios uh, around Hollywood, surrounded by alcohol and drugs and bodyguards and, of course, guns, which were one of Phil Spector's favorite things to own and play with. Uh, He's notorious for pulling guns on everyone he ever worked with during this time in the 70s, including John Lennon, Leonard Cohen, and uh, all four of the Ramones. (laughs) Um, there is some rumor that he may have pointed a, uh, a crossbow as well at Leonard Cohen. <laughs> um, so let's see if I can uh, redeem this album a little bit. Um, I think the first step to redeeming Death of a Ladies' Man is to think about the sloppiness and the incompleteness of the album as a glimpse not only into the unhinged conditions under which it was made, those conditions I was just describing, uh, but also a glimpse into the strange and turbulent and short history of rock and roll up until this point. Um, so let's keep in mind that rock and roll is a little bit more than 20 years old in 1977. Um, Death of a Ladies' Man participates in a kind of rock and roll revival that was happening in the late 1970s, which included um, shows like Happy Days, musicals like Grease, uh, which was made into a feature film the same year that Death of a Ladies' Man came out. Amidst all of the nostalgia, there were records that were trying to sort out how weird and fucked up rock and roll uh, was up until that point. Um, uh, albums like the, uh, the soundtrack to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, uh, for example, which kind of celebrated the campiness of rock and roll, um, which uh, I guess was kind of pushed out by maybe more macho hard rock in the 70s. Uh, I want to say that Death of a Ladies' Man is another one of these albums, a bit like Rocky Horror uh, Picture Show, that's also kind of dealing with rock and roll history, specifically, and Michael, you mentioned this earlier, and I thought you were joking, but uh, it's... uh, I think you're onto something. Um, I think that this album is dealing with a part of rock and roll history, specifically the problem of being a Jewish rock musician. Uh, and this might sound a little bit off the wall, but there are also lots of uh, other artists who were doing this at this time. 
um, who I will briefly mention later. Uh, so I don't want to say that this album is good because it's made by two Jewish guys, Leonard Cohen and Phil Spector, uh, who came of age as the world reckoned with the Holocaust um, and then went on to make their careers in an industry that throughout the 1960s was still very uh, anti-Semitic. Uh, you can just ask Robert Zimmerman uh, or uh, in the same Greenwich Village scene, Simon and Garfunkel, who were advised to adopt more marketable, i.e. less Semitic sounding stage names, which they did not do. Um, but I want to kind of keep the, some of these facts in mind to see if they can help us hear something a little bit uh, unexpected or even profound um, in this mess of overwrought production, bad singing, and goofy lyrics. So we listened to Memories earlier, so we won't listen to it again, but I just want to revisit that first uh, verse of Memories. Anything stand out to anybody there in that first verse of Memories? Yeah, a few things. Iron Cross and the blonde, the doll's blondest girl. Yes. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, cross on his lapel. Yes, yeah, Iron Cross, but I don't, I don't think I heard anything else. Um, that first line, Frankie Lane, he was singing Jezebel. Does anybody know what that refers to? No. Um, so he's referring to the song uh, Jezebel by Frankie Lane. song is, aside from Jezebel, the refrain, if ever a devil was born without a pair of horns, it was you, Jezebel. A devil, he's talking about a devil walking among humanity. Um, This is Catholic Frankie Lane saying this in 1951. Um, Does anybody know who Jezebel was? She's from the Bible, right? Yes. Um, I don't remember what she did in the story. Tempted somebody. I don't know. She's uh, in the Old Testament. Jezebel is a false prophet who encourages the blasphemous worship of deities over the Hebrew God. Oh, okay. Eventually, Jehu and his army are sent to punish her. Uh, as, but as the army approaches, she gets dressed in all of her finery and looks at them from over her window. Uh, she's eventually executed by being thrown from the window and then trampled by horses. And her flesh is then wow. eaten by dogs. <laughs> um, so uh, Jezebel has since been associated both with false prophecy mm. and also um, quite misogynistically with uh, promiscuous uh, womanhood. So that's what uh, Frankie Lane is evoking in his proto-rock and roll song, a sort of devilish, unfaithful woman. Um, though to Frankie Lane's credit, it should be noted that he was actually wound up being a pretty good guy and he was a pretty big ally to the civil rights movements in the 1960s, despite uh, this kind of <laughs> pretty misogynistic song huh. with, uh, with I would say, anti-Semitic overtones. Um, Jezebel, uh, it should be noted, was, uh, yes, she was um, turning people away from the true Hebrew God, right? Uh, so she was a bad Jew. Uh, 
we have this figure of Jezebel in the song, in the song Memories by Leonard Cohen. Uh, and then we have this next line, which is the, um, I pinned an iron cross to my lapel, which you all picked up on, and then walked up to the tallest and the blondest girl. Um, so what does that mean for Leonard Cohen to pin a lacrosse, uh, an iron cross to his lapel and then walk up to the tallest and the blondest girl? Well, I mean, what is he? What is he singing about right here? I don't know. Being a Jewish guy, wanting to date a blonde girl. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, acceptance. That's Except, I mean, so what is the iron cross, though? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what that means, actually. What is an iron cross versus like just a regular? I cross? Thought, isn't the iron cross something from World War Two? So the Iron Cross is um, second to the swastika, yeah. the, uh, the main symbol of the German army in World War II. Yeah, the Nazis were yes. know, the symbol for the Nazis. So it's a pretty, it seems like a rather oh, strange kind of thing for... The blonde girl, I guess. Yeah. Well, the blonde girl is the Aryan race, right? And the blonde girl is, of course, the Aryan race. Um, yeah. Some people believe uh, that he's referring to Nico here. Huh. Um uh, that may or may not be true. Why? I don't know. Why would he be referring to Nico? Because apparently he had like a big crush on her. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he had a crush on everybody. Yeah. Um, so at this teen dance in the 1950s that Leonard Cohen is describing in this song, uh, he's uh, he puts this iron cross on his lapel and he walks up to the tallest and the blondest girl in the room while a song about. Uh, uh, Jezebel is playing um, in a way he's which is, which I said a second ago is this kind of anti-Semitic song so in a way he's, it's like a really extreme way of trying to pass as Gentile I would say um, so he's kind of pinning the symbol of the German army onto his clothing uh, and then goes on to pursue and like this kind of archetypical Aryan woman um, so Phil Spector famously whitewashed a lot of his artists, uh, a lot of whom were people of color uh, that he made to appear and sound kind of like white. Um, and he did that usually to, uh, to so as not to offend the parents of the kind of waspy teeny boppers who bought a lot of his albums. Um, Cohen, on the other hand, was this kind of uh, cult poet and, and folky weirdo uh, without the same aspiration to stardom. He had far greater license to, to kind of inhabit his Jewish identity throughout his career, which he did. Uh, a lot of his songs have always been very rich with Old Testament imagery, like Jezebel, for example. Um, and his songs have also always been haunted by uh, the Holocaust in, in many ways. That, that, that is a, a recurring theme for Leonard Cohen throughout his, uh, his body of work. Um, <laughs> So it seems that only in the seedy despair of the 1970s in Los Angeles was the time kind of right for reckoning with the 20th century's most heinous crime, that is the Holocaust, um, and also with uh, reckoning with the 20th century's most jubilant art form, which would be rock and roll. Um, Leonard Cohen and Phil Spector were not the only two who were doing this kind of thing at this time. Uh, I wanted to play earlier the song um, Nazi Rock by Serge Gainsbourg, which is from the 1975 concept album Rock Around the Bunker, one year before. Filez vos bas noirs, les gars, ajustez bien vos accroches, bas vos portes, jartelez vos corsets, allez, venez, ça va se corser, on va danser le Nazi Rock, Nazi, Nazi, Nazi Rock, Nazi. Ouais, on va danser le Nazi Rock, Nazi. The lyrics translate roughly as, Come on, boys, put on your stockings, tighten those garters, 
Strap on your corsets, it's gonna go down. We're gonna dance the Nazi rock. Come on, boys, put on your red lipstick. Make your mouths all bloody. We're black and blue. We're gonna do the Nazi rock. So that's kind of a paraphrase of wow. of his lyrics. Um, and it's it sounds exactly like uh, like this kind of old timey rock and roll song like Grease or something or like Happy Days. It's like Leonard Cohen and Phil Spector were clearly kind of tapping into something that was happening uh, in the mid nineteen seventies, uh, having to do with. Um, reckoning with the second world war and also with rock and roll and maybe like how these things might be weirdly related (laughs) um so i want to turn real quick to uh don't go home with your heart on um and i think that what memories does for for um for thinking about judaism don't go home with your heart on does the same thing for thinking about uh masculinity um because it kind of plays with the idea of masculinity in rock and roll music. I was born in a beauty salon. My father was a dresser of hair. My mother was a girl you could call on. When you called, she was always there. When you called, she was always there. When you called, she was always there. Is dad gay or is he just the, the pimp? The dresser of hair. Well, he's the dresser of hair. It's not really clear what that means, but it's... Uh, um, Could be a shampoo thing. I don't know. Shampoo, Warren Beatty was like... Who he's singing about, like a super macho guy who's a hairdresser, though, in 75. So, hmm. I don't know. I guess it could, could He's be. singing about Warren Beatty? No, no. The, there's a movie from 75, I oh, think, okay. called Shampoo, with Warren Beatty was oh, a Oh, oh, Shampoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I guess he, could, he doesn't necessarily have to be gay. He could be... You know, a Warren Beatty-esque character, maybe, but interesting. So, what does it mean, like, not to go home with your heart on? Like, what does that mean? It's oh, like a I, sales pitch. It's a sales pitch. I like that. Right. What do you mean? Like, what? Come one, come all. Don't you want to come in so you don't have to go home with your heart on? Like, oh, I like that. <laughs> well, so, I, so I he's. Man, you just gotta get laid if you're out. Well, I know, right, but right, I feel yeah. like that's you know the salons like. Pitch right, like right. No, you come good. in yeah. and you don't leave. He's with a pimping heart himself on. out, yeah, yeah, in a way, yeah, saying like, I like that. That's cool. <laughs> um, it's a really, really weird line. Does anybody know anything else about this song, Michael? <laughs> no, I just I love this tune. I mean, this is oh, like okay. maybe my favorite album, a song on this album, but I, I don't know. I, I've never listened to the lyrics on, um, which I probably should because Cullen's great lyricist. Well, uh, a fun fact about this song is that the backup vocals are um, being oh, performed yeah. I know that. by Bob Dylan. Yeah, Bobby D's on this one. And also Bobby the poet D. Alan Ginsberg, yeah. interestingly mm-hmm. enough. Um, who was gay. Who was gay, yes, of course. Uh, and they were all Jewish. Yep. <laughs> yeah. um, so a couple, uh, just a couple other quick snippets of lyrics from this song. Uh, Leonard Cohen continues, I've looked behind all the faces that smile you down to your knees. And the lips that say, come on, taste us. And when you try to, they make you say, please. Here comes your bride with her veil on. Approach her, you wretch, if you dare. Approach her, you ape, with your tail on. Once you have her, she'll always be there. So I work in that same beauty salon. I'm chained to the old masquerade. The lipstick, the shadow, the silicone. I follow my father's trade. Mm-hmm. So there's this this kind of theme of emasculation that continues throughout the song. 
Uh, so he's born, as we said, to a prostitute and a male hairdresser, and then he's uh, dominated in this kind of uh, BDSM ritual where he's like he's like uh, forced down onto his knees. Uh, he's an ape with his tail on, which is slang for being um, tied down by your spouse uh, hmm. or being whipped. Never heard. Um, then he eventually becomes like his dad, a male hairdresser who's chained to uh, lipstick and silicone. Um, so we take. In this song, we take a kind of a whole tour through, like, male submission, uh, and we end up on the other end, um, like one of Gainsbourg's uh, kind of glam rock masquerading Nazis who are putting on red lipstick and putting (laughs) on garters and stuff. Um, So I want to start tying this all together. Um, You may uh, may be aware by now that um, I have a master's degree in English literature. Uh, <laughs> so that's always, oh, you uh, tell stories? <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's always my way into anything, is a little bit of uh, close reading, um, especially when I have the chance to sit down with it and take some time with it. Um, I want to conclude by quoting real quick uh, an article by a guy named Dustin Oneman. Uh, who posted something to an anthropology blog called Savage Minds about 10 years ago. He wrote, uh, Jewish rockers in the 1970s, like Kiss, Mark Bolin of T-Rex, Richard Hell, and the Ramones, were inheritors of a generation of Jewish masculinity defined by men like Arthur Miller, Philip Roth, and Norman Mailer, who were all authors. Um, I don't know if that's important. Uh, these kinds of tough guys, to continue quoting, these tough guys who lived hard, loved baseball, and married America's sexiest sex pots. Um, but the CBGB crowd were of a different breed than these guys from the previous generation. Uh, intensely urban and wedded to nascent sexual liberatism and the avant-garde bohemianism of the late 60s art scene, these guys dealt with the hollowness of, and they're always men, sorry, um, there's, that's something to be talked about, though. Uh, these these men dealt with the hollowness of consumerist prosperity in a rather more claustrophobic way. And he's talking about, um, let's say, like the punks. Uh, they would wear high heels, dresses, and lipstick. Uh, and they blunted their Jewish mas- the Jewish masculinity of their fathers, meaning the tough guys like um, Arthur Miller, by becoming their mothers and then pummeling their pseudo-female forms with drugs, violence, hard-living, alcohol, and promiscuity. Uh, so this almost sounds like um, this guy, one minute who I'm quoting here, it almost sounds like he's describing Cohen uh, as he kind of presents himself on Death of a Ladies Man. Um, Cohen is, on this album, he's kind of crumbling in the face of tough guy writer types, which he's he, he's kind of not quite living up to. Um so in Hard On, you know, he's uh, he's imagines himself as this male hairdresser, probably a male prostitute, um, this kind of emasculated guy who nevertheless, like, walks around all night with a giant erection, uh, <laughs> presumably partying and having sex. Um, uh, I don't want to go too far and say that Cohen is, like, a forgotten, like... Like queer icon because he's definitely not. Uh, throughout his body of work, he's very much this kind of his own kind of macho man, um, and he he likes to be this sort of lecherous playboy type. Um, and he's like really obsessed with women's naked bodies. That comes up all the time in all of his music. Um, but the point is, uh, for a lot of people, and I think maybe for some of us, right? Leonard Cohen is kind of on this the AM radio side of things. Uh, 
sort of on the soft rock side of the 70s. Um, but in his own way, he's kind of expressing a discontent that's sort of punk rock in its mm-hmm. way, I think, on this album. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that on this album, Leonard Cohen is is downright punk. Mm-hmm. And that is what redeems it in my eyes. Yes, I'm a huge fan of this album. I've always you, loved you it. You hinted at that. Now, I also <laughs> uh, didn't have the background of... Um, I don't think I even knew Phil Spector produced it when I first oh. heard it. Um, I didn't know that Cohen disowned it. I didn't really know much about it at all, so I just kind of took it at face value. And I think that kind of stuff colors opinions a lot, you know, mm-hmm. when you know that somebody's disowned it or when you know that it's a, you know very different than the rest of the catalog or this or that. So I just took it at face value, and I, I've always loved it. Uh, it, it's definitely all over the place and it's not like any other Cohen album obviously and, um, I think it you know it's messy for sure I kind of like that about it um, and I like the different styles and I do I just love Phil Spector too I mean it's got the whole album's got a, a definite like early 60s uh, kind of vibe to it you know like all this, a lot of Spectre stuff but yeah. this one it, uh, I think does even more and I think it's got some great songs on it I mean Iodine we didn't talk about that that's an we amazing song that. I think. that was my favorite from yeah. yeah I mean it's, it's I think it's a great album and it, it's uh, I agree that it's totally underrated and um but I never, I'm not, not a big lyrics guy. And Cohen's a guy that, you know, you should probably spend some time with the lyrics, which I've never really yeah. done. So I thought that was very interesting because I'd never thought, heard or thought about any of that about the lyrics. So I'd say it's pretty cool that you could read it on a couple of different levels, you know, especially the whole like Phil Spector. I mean, the, the Jewish level of Phil and, and Leonard, you know, imbuing a lot of the songs with that, I think is very interesting. So, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of the album. I think it's a great album, but I think that. I'll go back to it now and listen to it, listening cool. to the lyrics. You know, I think that's probably a lot. It's probably been getting grow in estimation now in my mind. So, so one person on my side. Yes, I'm definitely <laughs> on your side. Joe Cali. So, yeah, I mean, I was hearing all that stuff you're talking about. It was really, really fascinating. I certainly hadn't thought about any of it. But I'm wondering, when you were reading about it, do you think that that was part of the reason why he distanced himself? Like, was he... Did he and Phil talk about that? Was it a conscious choice, like, to make a statement? Was it, like, you know, did Phil push him in one direction and then he ended up regretting it? Or did he, was he exploring this all lyrically on his own? I just had a lot of questions about, like, how it all kind of came together and if it was, you know, the Jewish part was sort of incidental or just because of both their backgrounds or if it was something they actually talked about. And like you said, they had Ginsburg and Dylan on it, so... Like how deli- how deliberate, or was it sort of like? I'm just curious about how, what evidence he found out there about how they came together and what it was all about. It's it's not deliberate as far as I know, other than the fact that um, it's a recurring theme in Leonard Cohen's work for sure. I mean, he's he has many songs that deal uh, with um, Old Testament stories, for example, um, and with. Uh, in uh, kind of different ways, I think a little bit with the the Holocaust. A lot of his poetry is kind of obsessed with that. He has a poetry collection called Flowers for Hitler, for example. I mean, he he thought about it a lot, so it never went away. <laughs> and do you know anything about what Spectre thought about it? Uh, I don't think 
it was a big part of Spectre's career or professional life in any way, that part of his identity. Because um, part of what I was thinking is, is just that, that, that Cohen was sort of wanted to make a really pretty heavy statement. And then he was like, what the hell's up with this music? And like, it's, it wasn't, well, I mean, it's it wasn't working. It's, you, know? you think about, um, <clears throat> yeah, Cohen's lyrics and he says a lot, right? And a lot of what he says is heavy, important, you know, weighty stuff. And uh, Phil Spector's music, lyrically, it was like the complete opposite. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah, because it's like maybe it's a clash of uh, seriousness versus whitewashing versus extrovert versus introvert. That's what I was just thinking. Right. Like At first, I was like, oh, definitely extrovert, introvert. That makes sense. But yeah. then it's like maybe it's more about this guy's trying to be very straight and real with it and the other one's trying to couch it and I, that's what messed it up in, in Cohen's mind I, I think that's definitely that dy- that describes part of the dynamic I think that uh, went into making the album and also the, the dynamic that you can hear playing out on the album I think a little bit of of Leonard Cohen wanting as always to to deal with serious heavy things um phil specter wanting to just make a kind of fun rock and roll album yeah and then leonard cohen being like oh well i guess if i'm working with phil specter like how can i bring my heaviness to these rock and roll themes like like dancing at the teen dance listening to jezebel and like walking up and trying to dance with the girl like how can i make this about like world history <laughs> well it's almost yeah they're almost like uh it's almost like a warped Phil Spector song, you know what I mean? Because it's still yeah. like thematically, it's a lot of the same things, like high school love and yeah. you know a dance and things like that. But it's like through this warped lens of Leonard Cohen's like, <laughs> you know, Semitic obsession with you know what happened in World War II, and I think I read I I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I feel like they. I don't know if you read about this or they like saw each other somewhere and were just like, let's do an album together. And they're like, okay. And then just like did a ton of drugs and so drank that's what a I heard ton. they were up late at night doing something. Yeah. They were like, we should do an album. Yeah, why not? And they didn't really think it yeah. through or like, and they just right. kind of ran the recording studio and did it. And it's kind of a miracle that it's as good as it is. I mean, if they didn't put that little forethought into it and the, yeah, there's so such polar opposites. I mean, even like a band like the Ramones, you know, and Phil worked with them, you would think like you're from the hip reaction would be like, oh, well, they're totally different, but not really that different. You know, I mean, not like Leonard Cohen is a lot further away, I think, from Phil Spector than the Ramones. So I, it's definitely an odd pairing and I don't know, but I like to hear what it sounds like. I mean, what it sounded like before it was, you know, taken over by Spector. Like what was, what was the, the bare bones of it? You know, because I feel like that would probably be a lot closer to Cohen, even if it if it you know took on that quality of I'm working with Phil Spector, so here's what I'm going to produce for him. But like when they walked away from it from the first like cut, like what did it sound like? You know, that's what I feel like that would be a lot closer. Well, it would have been great is if he could, they're his songs, right? So if he would have yeah. after the album recorded another version yeah. like right. of how he wanted it and being able to compare those two would be pretty interesting. Or like, let's hear the acoustic version of this yeah. with Leonard Cohen singing. Yeah. Like, let's, you know, because the lyrics are so strong and, and, you know, as you've shown, they've, they have a deeper meaning than what you're just getting on mm-hmm. the surface of listening yeah. to a song. So it'd be interesting if, like you said, like you're, you're not really listening to the lyrics so much. So if, if right. the lyrics were the spotlight, if the music was kind of toned down a little bit, yeah. you know, you probably would get an entirely different experience. So, 
I'm mixed. Verdict? My verdict is, um, at first I was like, I think at first I kind of liked it. First time I heard it. Then I was like, because we've been playing this for a little while, so I listened for a little bit and I was like, I kind of hate it. (laughs) (laughs) It's just awful. And then more recently, I think it's redeemed itself and I was sort of thinking, you know, if I have to make a choice, I would defend it. I think it's definitely, uh, there's a couple of really good songs on there. Um, it's super interesting. The lyrics are solid, so I would have to, I would have to defend it, but just barely, just barely. <laughs> I don't like it as much as you do. I do. I love it, man. I love it. Okay. Right, that's two. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh oh. Like I said, I barely knew Leonard Cohen. So coming in at this entirely face value, to your point, I do not defend the album, but I do highly respect your defense. <laughs> Is that fair? Can we That's do like the, half yeah, and half? Fair. Okay. Yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. Because good answer. If you hadn't, yeah. I mean, walking into this, I knew I was not going to defend this album. Like you couldn't change my mind. I did not. <laughs> That's no, it's fine. I did like the sign, the song "Iodine," which you brought up, and yeah. I, I listened to that. Um, that's the only song that I'd say I went back and listened to like a little closer and like I mean I listened to the album multiple times that song like kept me thinking like okay this is pretty good like I, I feel it you know but I just couldn't I couldn't get into the rest of it Fair enough. Don't Go Home With Your Heart On was just kind of like this is just like I don't know it's, it's, it's a sign of it's time I guess <laughs> I think and like you said it's a sign of it's time but like I also just couldn't get behind it and like I just I can't defend the album but kudos to you. Two out of three is pretty good, though. Yeah. I mean, you know. So under our rules, it is officially... Defended. Defended. <laughs> Defended. <laughs> Defended. <laughs> cool. <laughs> the defense knocked your headphones off. Let Kojo certified. Let Kojo's down. He's down. Thanks for listening to Music Defender. Produced by Unlock Productions, all rights reserved. If you like what you heard, tell your friends and subscribe or follow on all your favorite podcast channels. 